Welcome to episode 19 of Blue Jays Happy Hour. I'm Nick Ashbourne, joined as always by Andrew Stoughton. And today we have a very special guest who is Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. We're going to talk a lot of baseball, Blue Jays baseball with her a little bit later. But first, let's get to a stretch that was sort of, you know, it was good. The Blue Jays performed well against the Tigers, against the Orioles. That's not too much of a surprise, but Stone maybe they needed a little bit more to get us excited heading into this weekend. Yeah, I, I think so, especially with like the teams that they're chasing being a plentiful and b uh, winning themselves. Uh, there was, you know, the uh, they were fortunate, I think, you know, when they had the the dreadful uh, second half of August, where like if you look at the playoff odds, like the line is just it looks like the Liberal Party uh, just heading, just heading straight towards disaster. Uh, and they pulled back up a little bit, but uh, but that also happened uh, as that was happening. The A's and the the Red Sox were hitting a bit of a trough as well, and now the Red Sox are sort of coming off. Like I saw somebody, I think it was in Peter Gammon's thing, or he was retweeting somebody was calling it maybe the high point of the season for Boston. Coming, you know, they got Sale back. They've been starting to pitch well. Uh, that's not great, and I believe that the Red Sox are, as we're speaking, uh, closer to the Yankees than the the A's are to the Red Sox, which you know. Uh, maybe that gives you hope that you can pull, you can reel the Yankees in, but that's just an even bigger task. Uh, and you know, first and foremost, you got to catch uh, the teams in front of you, which the Jays have a great chance to do this weekend with Oakland. Uh, but they would have had an even greater chance if they hadn't, you know, they've been able to muster anything against guys with like six ERAs in, uh, in against Baltimore on Tuesday in particular. You know, they won the other two, one very, very closely, one that was sort of a laugher. The you know, if you look at the box score on Monday, but like. That was a tight game until very late in it, and it was sort of like a big exhale at the end of it. So, uh, you know, that was tough. They 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 haven't been they haven't been sweeping teams, and that would be real good for them at this point. Yeah, I mean, the Orioles are such a joke that it's not <laughs> fair to expect a sweep, but mm. it's fair to want a sweep and think that it's got a reasonable chance of happening. So, yeah, winning two out of three is sort of the bare minimum you can do against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two out of three against the Tigers is you know, probably all right. But as you say, it's all about context, right? Like if you're winning series in May, you're always happy to win a series. But now we're getting down to it. We're in September. The teams around them are doing well. The athletics this weekend is going to be interesting in terms of trying to claw them back. But really, that's just a post marker along a very very long road to potentially making the playoffs, which, you know, we were talking before the show it's conceivable, and you know this is called Blue Jays Happy Hour, so maybe this is not the thought you want to put into the universe in the first <laughs> few minutes. But it's conceivable that this is the last episode that we're talking about the Blue Jays in the playoffs. Like if they really, uh, you know, if they lose two or if, if they lose three against the Athletics and go into next week and continue to struggle, like that sort of eight percent playoff odds that we've been noodling on for it seems like a few weeks now could get extinguished. Like that's how delicate it is. So. Yeah, it's hard to feel super positive about where they are right now, even after winning a couple of series. On the flip side, you know, maybe Vladdy's back a little bit, so that's a thing. Yeah, that was uh, that was real good. And, and also, I think on the flip side is, you know, the A's are in a playoff race too, which means there's going to be tight games. But you know, uh, I'm sure the A's fans are not looking at Barrios and Ray and Manoa, who they're going to face this this weekend, not in that order. I forget what the order is. Uh, but that's that's a real tough task. Like the Blue Jays have some real great starting pitching that they're going to throw at this team, uh, which really does give them the chance to win any ball game that they're in. Uh, and I think I, I think it was uh, Brandon Coon who was on on Twitter who broke George Springer news quite famously or famously among my sort of Twitter circles at least. 
uh, was talking about how the Jays had a, a stretch at one point in the season where they went, you know, 21 and seven or something like that. It was kind of under the radar uh, because, it, you know, we're talking arbitrary endpoints, but it's like the, that's the kind of record that they're, they're going to need to have to pull off uh, over the next month to, to really, really solidify and, and catch these teams. Uh, but it, it, this team is it's possible they could do it. Like, uh, you know, and even if it's a I mean, if it's a real disaster of a, of a week coming up then maybe it'll be extinguished. But I, I still think that we'll we'll have some faint hope next week, even in sort of the worst of circumstances, which is, uh, which is you know, all you can ask for, I think, at this point. Um, though it has obviously been extremely frustrating to watch them, you know, for two months, have sol- solid starting pitching and be like, okay, they just got to make their move. Like the, the, the bullpen, well, maybe it hasn't been two months that it's been sorted out, but it's been, it's been decent for a month. It hasn't been killing them for the last month, you know, since the trade deadline. And even really since, you know, Adam Simber and, and Trevor Richards came by and which was in, uh, uh, I think, uh, late June, early August or sorry, late June, early July. Um, you know, there's obviously been problems there, but it, it just, it's, been, it's felt like they've been spinning their wheels, uh, for so long that, you know, that now, really the the wheels need to stop spinning and gain some traction and and they've maybe left it too late but uh there's a there's all to play for like you know the the Yankees and the A's uh winning games off then will be will be real important to the cause and then they got a lot of rays to to face as well but still some Orioles left and and the Twins who are bad um it's it's doable uh, you know I don't think we we do need to be too dour about it and like I say uh, if you're the A's, you don't feel great about facing this Blue Jays team. And I think that's sort of like where I'm trying to put my head at it, you know, to try to try to think about it that way, because, you know, the Jays are a real good team. Uh, and it's easy when you're sort of mired in what they've been doing, you know, this whole damn season to, to forget about it that and lose sight of it a little bit. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, you know, when other teams face the Jays, they can't feel good about the starting pitching that they're facing. And that's been the positive story for the Blue Jays kind of in the second half of the season is they've consistently gotten great production from their starters and it is sort of wild that they haven't been able to convert that into wins considering what the offense has done for the vast majority of the year especially when Springer is in the lineup but now we're hitting a little bit of a bump in the road with the offense which is in one sense it's kind of expected because you know hitters go through slumps even the best hitters aren't as consistent as sometimes we assume they are um, it's, you know, it's fair to think that once in a while a team is going to have a couple of weeks where they don't hit especially well. I'm just wondering if there's anything in it right now that has you concerned sort of bigger picture of this core position player. Like, is this little wobble, is it just really shitty timing and it doesn't mean anything? Or is there something in this that makes you think, okay, what can we reevaluate going into next year? What are the f- potential flaws in the makeup of this position player core? Because that, generally speaking... Um, isn't going to get altered too much with the exception of whatever happens with semi and and or placement there. Yeah, well, I mean, it, I think it still could. I mean, I don't think the, I think Guriel is still a guy where I, I'm like, OK, you know, when Atkins talks about and he's done this a couple of times recently about, you know, maybe having too many similar hitters and that's been you know, made it easier for relievers to carve them up a bit late in games. You know, you don't have to, you don't have that uh, Kevin Biggio in the lineup, for example, even though, you know, this is, uh, you know, I've been slanderous of, of Biggio's potential, uh, I'm sure many times throughout the year, maybe not as much as some of the internet uh, uh, has as well. But uh, he was a guy that I remember last year, actually, Dante Bichette, who's back with the team now uh, in a, a sort of advisory capacity as a hitting coach. I uh, was talking about last year was really important because he gave teams a different look and they don't really have that. Even, you know, Corey Dickerson hits from the left side, but 
is sort of a boomer bust guy in that same sort of manner. And and Springer and Vlad are really the only guys who uh, are really above average or elite about at taking walks in those lineup right now. And that's something that they've struggled with. I think they're they're 24th in, in uh, team walk percentage this year so far. Uh, and so Gurriel is maybe a guy who is, is a bit streaky. And, and I think that maybe takes that similar boomer bust shape and, and is a guy who you know, has the contract that is movable and, and obviously they have chemistry concerns that you wouldn't want to break up things to, you know, maybe why that wouldn't happen in season. But I think there could still be some tinkering, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, and it's interesting to hear Atkins talk about that. Uh, Dante was on the radio in Toronto on, on Writer's Block on Sportsnet this week and he was sort of asked, him, like, what's wrong? And basically did the same thing everybody else is doing. Well, well, it could be this, it could be that. I don't, you know, maybe they're pressing, you know, maybe they're just hitting a trough, like they're young, there's a lot to... Uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot that it could be, and not a lot that's really clear that's that that is going on with it. That's the, that that you could diagnose. And I think the the youth is a, is a really interesting thing. Uh, and Atkins was clear to point that out that they're he's like, oh, we're the fourth youngest team in baseball, and and we would be, you know, it would be even younger. Because, but the teams behind us traded all their guys with age uh, at the trade deadline. Uh, and I think if you go to uh, Baseball Reference, you can look at team ages and uh, and and it splits it into position players and 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 pitchers. Uh, but and I think divides it by plate appearances taken, and the Jays are the lowest age team in terms of position players this year, uh, which is which is remarkable considering how good they've been. And they do have you know, well, I mean, partly that's because Springer didn't play as much as he probably you know we would have liked. Uh, but there is youth on this team, and there is guys that uh, that uh, that are still sort of learning and learning to. And this was Bichette's point: is sort of learning to play in close games. And he thinks this is you know, I mean, he's putting lipstick on a pig a little bit, but he was talking about how he thinks that the the experience is really valuable either into next year or in the postseason. Uh, you know, just having all these these tight games and, and you know, that's sort of how postseason baseball goes. Uh, they're starting to maybe turn a corner. They've been able to pull out some wins uh, in, in close ones. You know, it, it's easier to do against Baltimore than it is against a team that, you know, isn't horrifically bad. Um, but, you know, there, there, I, I would not discount that there's something to that, to the to the youth factor. Um and and you know and he made the point that you know Marcus Semyon is a guy who's been super steady for them. But if you look at his career, it was up and down for a long time before he he sort of found this you know veteran state where uh, he's just a regular productive guy. And Springer's that guy too. And 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 there's just a little more volatility I think in some of these younger players is where he is at. And I think that makes sense. Uh, and I think it's possible that it is could, just could be a little trough that that teams go through like the Yankees did earlier in the season as well. Um, but that doesn't make it any less frustrating or less like confounding as to like how you set up next year. But also, we'll have a long time to talk about next year, perhaps as soon as next week. So I'm wary yeah. of going too deep. Very into that true. As well. yeah. I think the Biggio part of that uh, discourse is just so funny to me because people spent so much time trying to bury Biggio this year, and I understand some of the flaws. And we've talked about it on this before. I'm a little bit higher on Biggio. But a lot of people just think that he's put down a solid enough, you know, track record of being effective that, you know, people wanted to kind of throw him out after this kind of injury-filled, brutal lost year. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. But now, suddenly, the lineup struggling, people are having, you know, fond thoughts of Kevin Biggio that weren't coming up anywhere <laughs> yeah. earlier in the season. The other thing is that, you know, I know we've talked, this is 2021 is an important opportunity. This is sort of a win now team in many ways, but it's also a team that's kind of recently come together. And so when you're in sort of the earlier part of putting together your competitive window, 
you're really trying to accumulate just good players. That sounds overly simplistic, but trying to accumulate players that fit together in a specific way is sort of a luxury for when you're farther down that road. Like when they got Teoscar Hernandez, they weren't thinking, oh, this is another right-handed guy who might be boom or bust. Are we going to have too many of those guys? When they got Grichuk, that wasn't the thought process. When they got Gurriel, they were just trying to accumulate talent. And this is sort of the result of that talent accumulation. And now when you're willing to spend in free agency, when your team is a little farther down the road, now you can think, okay, how can we fit the pieces together properly? I think that they were just trying to create the most value and this is the lineup that resulted. And largely it's been a really good lineup, but there is a sameness to it. Um, you know, they do need some left-handed bats in there. You know, the Yankees early in this year is a good comparison. Like they went through some rough stretches and part of that is the fact they didn't have a left-handed power presence and now they do and the third thing you mentioned is the youth and that's something that you know i think we sometimes overestimate how much players are going to get better we assume they're just going to get better and better and better throughout their careers and that's not necessarily the way it works but one thing that does tend to get better fairly consistently over time and as players age is play discipline so mm-hmm. You know, you know the Bobachet we see today. I don't think Bobachet's ever going to be Joey Votto, but <laughs> no. two years from now we might be looking at a guy who doesn't spend so much time in O2 counts, uh, and we might be looking at a Vlad who's even more advanced. And so we, I, they definitely need some external pieces. And Guriel is an example of a movable guy, and you'd like to have a left-hander, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there might be some internal growth in the type of things they're struggling with now. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think that that you know definitely that is a thing, and and you you forget that you know Bichette was hurt for a bunch of his first year and last year, and I, uh, this is a point that uh, that his dad made on the radio about you know his defensive improvements because he certainly looked better defensively in the second half of this year, and I think that's a big win that the Jays have had this year. Uh, a part of it is just reps, and yeah, that is definitely a thing. And another thing that I thought was interesting that Atkins would point out or pointed out when he spoke the last couple times in the media was, you know, you can't do it all at once, which is something that he was kind of saying, you know, fans want you to to fix everything at once. And and I think that they maybe just have this mindset of even with, you know, we talk about, well, you got to be a win now team. You have Springer and Ryu, you're paying them a bunch of money, you're paying. And, and I, I think maybe they're a little more... Uh, to, willing to accept that that's not necessarily the case, and it's just you have good player, and you you keep you keep layering in guys year after year, uh, trying to improve your team, uh, and so that that doesn't you know when that process starts, it doesn't necessarily mean that you feel like you're win now, uh, in the way that you know the, those big contracts look. I mean, Ryu certainly uh, in the first year without Springer certainly made it made it look like uh, you know that I think that that. Uh, applies to him and to that contract they clearly weren't you know they paid a pitcher 80 million dollars and clearly weren't you know really thinking to be a win now team so maybe we just have to reset what we think about what the whole long-term project is here um but again that's you know that's off-season stuff and and right now you know there should be enough talent on this team to win and to win consistently and they haven't for you know a long time of this season uh, and it is now it is now crunch time. It'll be fascinating to watch them play the A's, and I I hope they I hope you know at the bare minimum they just they keep this they they keep hope alive, right? I mean that's uh, and it's also so weird, you know. I would say not fair, you know. Meaningful baseball in September, uh, we just we pined for that for years. Like that was like that was the dream. Like this we're living it, and I know I've said this a couple of times. Like we're 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 doing the thing that we always wanted to see this baseball team do. Uh, and <laughs> it gets here and everybody's kind of like, 
bitter about it and frustrated and, and understandably so, but also, uh, I don't know, there's a month of baseball left to enjoy. And I, I, I don't, I personally don't want to feel like it's over in a week. Like I want it to go down to the wire, win or lose. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the hope. We talk about meaningful baseball in September. It's possible that we don't get it for too far into September, but also it's possible that they go and, you know, they beat the A's this weekend and go on and do well against it. Like, all that is on the table. I was just presenting that as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Like, next week we could be having a very different conversation, but I, uh, you know, my, my hope would be it's just more interesting to watch a team that is, <laughs> is competitive yeah. than not. One of the things that I'm fascinated to see over the next, you know, not just week, but the rest of the season is what's going to happen with Nate Pearson, because we've been talking about the Nate Pearson saga all season long from beginning to end. And it seems like there was sort of a a little bit longer of a pause than I thought when it was like, oh, Pearson's coming back. He's going to get a couple of outings in AAA and then he's going to be at the big leagues and he, he got more than a couple outings down there and he had, he did have a, you know a couple of those were fairly rough outings and I understand why they didn't want to rush him back and see him sort of fail right away now there's I guess there's some confidence that he can do something at the major league level is going to help them so first of all so what are you expecting to see from Pearson and I guess the flip side of that is what is your what are you hoping to see and how do those two <laughs> things differ yeah, I mean, I think it's obvious, right? I mean, hoping to see the guy that he was, you know, very briefly when he was in the bullpen last year and the guy who could throw 100 and uh, who isn't fighting himself to command, right? And I think that's sort of been the, the thing. And I, I think some of it's probably pain management as well. Like they're talking about surgery after the season potentially because the hernia is like not, you know, it, 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 and it, it's affecting, you know, his lower half and how he's able to to, you know, his his mechanics and it's something that i think that they hope now that they finally you know after you know months of figuring trying to figure out what it was to diagnose and having him shut down uh i I think that they know what it is but it's still sort of a matter of pain management and i think that's i think that's a thing with julian merriweather as well where you know he's just never gonna not have soreness somewhere because it's just he's one of those guys where you know we've seen we've all we went through the brandon morrow thing you know we've we've seen guys uh where you know, their bodies just don't, don't respond as well as others to the rigors of throwing a baseball in the upper 90s, which is, you know, some extreme stresses that you're putting on yourself. So, you know, I for me with with Pearson, yeah, I mean, I hope they I hope they don't throw him into the fire too much. Like they they feel, you know, Meza and, and uh, Romano right now are doing really well at the back of the bullpen. I think Soria is good. He had a little bit of a blip there against the Orioles like immediately after I told somebody no sorry is fine like there's no reason to not to worry about him in this situation then he gives up a couple of runs yeah that walk as, was, as was kind of bullshit though and if he didn't yes. have that walk he would have been out of the inning fine so. I think that's correct yeah and uh but yeah so I, I think they're they're relatively stable at the back of the bullpen and so it gives them the opportunity to let Pearson sort of work his way up the pecking order uh and which i don't think would take him too long if he looks anything like we think nate pearson should be able to look like right uh but it is it's the command that that worries you and it seems to be something that comes and goes so if it's there then i don't think i don't think there's any concern i think he could be you know a top end relief option for them and a guy who can work his way into you know pitching in seventh eighth ninth inning um but if it comes and goes, then you know I'm not going to say it's like Brad Hand, but uh, but you you're, you you worry about it because you need that consistency, and we've seen that all year, right? You know, Hand Hand maybe didn't have any good outings, I don't know, but like Rafael Dolis was was very fine at times and had a little stretch, but you know you just can't depend on a guy where you don't know where the ball is going 
Uh, Tyler Chatwood, the same thing. You know, even when he was sort of struggling with it and fighting it, he would come, you know, he would have an outing where, okay, it worked, but uh, but it became elusive. And, and that's, you know, that is, I think, the that's the worst case scenario other than him getting hurt. Fucking knock on wood about that, because that's obviously been a thing too. But uh, it sounds like he's in a good place physically. Um, but yeah, the you, you just, you, you worry about the command and uh, you'd love to see him get a good run and get, you know, consistent innings and sort of develop that consistency more. And I think that's why he was in AAA for as long as he was. Yeah, seeing him harnessed as his stuff effectively is really the biggest part of what we're going to learn here. Uh, mm. I'm going to be interested to sort of watch how the discourse evolves. Because if he, like, say he does really, really well out of the bullpen, which I think is a fairly solid possibility that he'll come in and he'll excel at the bullpen. I think what you'll hear is a lot of sort of excitement and drumbeat for what he can potentially do in 2022. And the thing is, out of the bullpen, he's probably just going to be fastball slider. And when he was starting for the last year, that the sort of concern was the fastball and slider were solid and the other stuff, his changeup and his mm-hmm. curveball, weren't really doing anything. So he, in some ways, he can't really prove that he's... I don't know. It's hard to say he's improved if he spent so much time injured this year, but he can't really prove that he's going to be a great starter with anything he does in relief in the rest of the year. But he can prove to some degree that um, he's able to step onto a major league mound and command his pitches and use, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and just use his fastball aggressively, you know, not nibble too much. And we know the stuff will get guys out. And if anything, you know, Robbie Ray this year has basically been fastball slider. That's and so has, I was exactly going to just say that. Yeah, has, <laughs> has shown that like if you throw those pitches in the right spots, you consistently spot them and they're good. And I think you know Ray's slider is maybe more special than Pearson's, but Pearson's fastball is more special than just about anybody. So mm-hmm. the template is there, but I, I I still don't think that he'll be able to prove that he'll be a good starter next year by what he's doing. But, you know, that's, you know, that's too much to ask. And he, he can prove that he's more ready for the big leagues, that his body is feeling all right. And those are things that have been concerns all year long. So we might not get every answer that we want from this little bit of Nate Pearson we see, even if they stretch him out to a couple innings. I don't think we'll get all the answers. But at the same time, it's just exciting to see a guy this talented do his thing. And, you know, you, you know, it's been a frustrating year for him. And so just from a human perspective, too, it's nice to see a guy be rewarded a little bit for a year that he's undoubtedly been kind of banging his head against a wall. Yeah, you'd like to see him finish on a high note for sure. And I think, you know, they've been uh, Atkins, I, I think in particular, has, has you know, kind of was wishy-washy about, you know, where he'll probably be a starter when they first diagnosed the the hernia thing when talking about next year moving him to the bullpen. And more recently, it's been, oh, he's going to like he's going to come to camp as a starter. And that's, you know, uh, that that could prove troubly troublesome because of like if he if it goes well, I mean, that's a good problem to have. But if it goes well, you'll have to think about innings and what you're going to do there. But uh, but yeah, just to have him finish strong, uh, you know, feel like the year wasn't a complete waste would be real nice finish healthy go get surgery, get ready to come back, you know, if that's what they decide the course of action is, and then be ready to come back in spring training and and uh, and just and just sort of pick up where he was supposed to have been two years ago. But this is, I mean, this is sort of the story of Nate Pearson all the time is just setback after setback, which is just such a shame. So like you said, yeah, it's great to, to be able to see him do his thing because uh, that stuff should get big league hitters out. Yep, and spring training 2022 is going to be absolutely chock full of Nate Pearson stories. I can guarantee that, whether he's healthy or hurt. 
Now we are going to be joined by our guest for today, which is the Athletics beat writer for the Toronto Blue Jays, Caitlin McGrath. Caitlin, I've been really excited to have someone on the show who is sort of following the Blue Jays on a day-by-day basis as a beat reporter, just because that has changed so much in recent weeks with them coming home. How has your life changed covering a team that is now in your backyard as opposed to, you know, states and hours of flights and or driving away? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, that first game and that first homestand was like, you know, getting back on a bike sort of thing. You know, you know how to do it and it kind of comes back to you, but um, it still takes a little while to adjust to it. Um, But it was funny, like how quickly it felt like completely normal. I mean, even that first game, um, there was a lot happening. That was also the trade deadline. And so it was an incredibly busy day for you know, everybody involved with the team um, and us writers. But it was funny, like, you know, there was, I'm sitting in the press box and I'm working on my story. And, you know, then all of a sudden there's this like um, really emotional um, sort of pregame ceremonies going on. And it was kind of this weird experience for me where it's like, it felt completely normal for me to just be like, you know, working away in the press box and trying to get my story in. But then like also watching this like sort of, I don't know, once in a lifetime sort of experience of this pregame ceremony that's, you know, really emotional and, and the, the fans are going crazy and the players and the coaching staff um, are incredibly moved on the field. And I'm like watching this and it felt kind of surreal to be back, but also completely normal. And then even in that game, like, you know, there was times where I felt like, of course, I'm back here. I'm just working. This is what I do. And then I had to keep kind of thinking to myself, no, but it's it's almost been like two years since I've been here. Like, and so, um, you know, everything felt incredibly familiar, but then also it felt like um, you're kind of reminded about how long it's been since you've been there. But, um, you know, beyond that experience of sort of just readjusting to um, sort of the um, the leaving my apartment again and having a place to go. <laughs> We're all adjusting to leaving our apartments again. <laughs> yeah, like so that was honestly it was welcome for me. I was kind of uh, really zoomed out um, by the end of that period with the Blue Jays and watching so many games on TV and just sort of working in my same spot in my apartment. Um, I was pretty uh, pretty over that at the point where they were coming back. So I think um, it was really like a brush of breath of fresh air for me to like get back down to the ballpark and just reconnect with the players. And you know what was funny? Like that first day or, you know, I had been on so many Zooms with Marcus Simeon at that point, but never actually had met him. And, you know, I remember like just saying hello to him and, and kind of like, introduce myself like hey it's you know Caitlin McGrath here and he kind of laughed as if like 
I know who you are. Like, we've been doing this for a while. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, we haven't seen each other in person. Um, so that was kind of fun to just, like, reconnect with some players that you knew um, from previously covering them in 2019. But also, you know, actually see these guys in person for the first time, um, especially the guys that have joined the team since um, 2020 and, and 2021. So all to say, I'm, I'm glad to be back down there. It's definitely been an adjustment, um, sort of reminding myself like, oh yeah, I can talk to players now. Like if I need to do an interview with them, like I can just go talk to them because I got so used to like having to be really creative with ways I covered the team just because of uh, the limitations that Zoom um, has and the limitations that you just have on yourself when you're just watching on TV or when you're not able to be around the team. So definitely like grateful to have them back, but also still kind of adjusting and getting back to like the flow of how I used to work uh, back in 2019. Yeah, I mean, when you mentioned, like you said, how much the what you're able to do from a work perspective changed, not just the feeling of being there and sort of the routine, but in terms of the actual output, um, one of the stories you did recently about, you know, the, getting that story on the home run jacket, which had become sort of such a staple of the broadcast and the fans had really connected with, is the sort of thing that struck me as something that would be really hard to do if it was fully over Zoom, but because all the players available... Now, um, you know, you're able to delve into some of those more personal stories that were been di more difficult to get in the past. So how has them coming home been able to sort of open up your playbook, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah, I mean, that story was a great example of that um, in the sense of like, would it have been possible to do that story over Zoom? Definitely. It would have taken me a lot longer because in the Zoom world, um, in sort of that type of reporting, you just kind of had to wait for one of those guys to come around. So like potentially we would have pregame Zooms a lot of the time. And so they would just kind of cycle through guys. And so, you know, I would just hope like, okay, maybe this guy will come on a pregame Zoom and I can ask him one question. But then you have to be careful with that kind of stuff too, because if they are coming off a loss and they do a post-game Zoom um, and it's a guy that has worn the jacket before, but um, they just lost an important game or something, I'm not going to go on the post game zoom and say hey can you tell me about the home run jacket like so that's <laughs> where the li limitations of um the zoom was you had to be you know at the right you had to just kind of hope the stars align for you when you were on it to work on those stories um and they were just a lot i mean i did a few kind of stories like that um in 2020 and i just remember it was like thinking like this story would take me like two days to do if i was there in person and it's taken me two weeks to do this now because i just had to sort of wait for my moments to ask those questions. So yeah, the home run jacket story was, um, you know, a, a perfect example of a story that is much better and much easier to do when you just can talk to them face to face. And also like when you're talking to them face to face, you know, you can ask more questions. Um, you're just talking to them one on one. So you tend to get maybe better answers because they're not, you know, staring at a screen and answering this question that uh, in front of like, you know, maybe five, six, seven different reporters and broadcasters and stuff. And so when you're just one on one and they know you're working on like a print story, I find that you might be just getting more sort of casual answers um, as opposed to the sort of like more sound by the answers. And generally speaking, when you're writing a story like that, you want the answers to just be more casual and like conversational um, as opposed to just like a sound bite. So, you know, those stories are really fun to work on. Uh, I'm glad I got that story done. And, and I think people responded it, to it really well. Um, and yeah, just like other stuff, like, I mean, I'm working on a story right now on Robbie Ray, which I'm I'm willing to reveal because I don't think it's a scoop or anything that I'm working on a story about how Robbie Ray has been really good this season. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's also a story where um, 
getting as many voices as possible just makes the story richer. And so being able to talk to basically everyone in the rotation um, and have a good one-on-one -on -one conversation with them about Robbie Ray and what's been like watching him and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, that's another example of like, you know, if I can, I can get like three, four interviews done in a pregame period because I just, you know, these guys are walking by and I just stop them for a second. Whereas again, in the Zoom, like, a, you don't really get the starters other than after their starts. So those are, again, like I said earlier, you have to be really careful when you're asking guys um, after their starts, like questions that maybe aren't about the start. Um, generally, you don't want to do it too much. And, you know, generally you only want to do it after the start's gone well or something. So those those are types of stories where, you know, the stories that I like to do or, or how I make stories richer is like talking to as many people as possible. And when the Zoom world, it was just really hard to do that because to talk to as many people as possible, you had to be really patient, you had to wait a long time, and then sometimes you still didn't even get everyone you wanted. So that to me, like just having the access, um, it's not perfect, we're not in the clubhouses yet, but the field is like such a huge upgrade from what we had before that the the ability to just go down there and talk to like, um, you know, five, six different guys uh, over a course of a couple of days and, and build a story is really good. And I should just add, like, not even just for stories, like on the record conversations, but also just like chatting with the players again and, you know, talking to them, um, you know, as other human beings, you know, just like, you know, asking them, you know, how the road trip was or, you know, where, how's their family doing? And especially guys that, you know, from covering them before so having those like casual just like person-to-person -person conversations that are quite frequent in baseball just because in the everyday nature of the game and the everyday nature of like you know players and reporters just being there together so that's also been beneficial too just to sort of like you know connect with players that you knew well and kind of um just you know hear little things or just show an interest in their lives which generally helps when you're working on future stories um because you know they they know they can trust you or they know that you're, you know, conscientious with the questions you ask or anything like that. And yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know if people know, but yeah, it was like, you know, pregame, you'd get Charlie, postgame, you'd get Charlie. And then it would be a couple guys maybe before and, and a couple, you know, usually the starter would get, you'd get the him afterwards. But yeah, it was very, you know, the team would just tell you who's, this is the guy on the Zoom tonight. And, you know, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it, I, it was obviously very, <laughs> very limiting in who you could speak to. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, pregame, it would really just be one. And it generally was just cycling through guys. And so you would get some days you would just get like a reliever who had um, had a good outing or something like that. And, you know, sometimes that's good for people who are working on like daily notebooks. And there's definitely like a necessity for that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of people that just need to, you know, file content and fill pages and newspapers and stuff like that. But for my purposes sometimes like I don't necessarily need a lot of that stuff and so it was quite limiting because if I was like just had an idea and I was like oh I would love to talk to these three guys um you know it's difficult to make that happen or like I said you just have to like be patient for them to come around um and yeah and like some days you know if it was a tight schedule for the Blue Jays or if it was um a, a day game after a night game or something like that those circumstances like you might not get anyone and that's totally understandable um and often like even and even in person sometimes those um day games after night games players come in later and it can be a little bit harder to um track guys down because you know they, they usually have the day off from like 
BP or it's optional that day. So those types of things do happen. Um, it's not like everyone's always available every single day in person. Um, but just like the Zoom um, sort of magnified how sort of difficult it can be or sometimes guys aren't available and then you're just sort of only relying on the game content. And if, you know, a game isn't particularly um, you know, exciting or important to write about, then there's some days where it's just like, there's not really much for me to do, or I, I didn't really achieve much in terms of, um, you know, trying to do a unique story or trying to do a story that no one else is on because it was just really difficult to have access to anyone to talk to. This, this is a two-part question. One of the parts is not serious and one of them is. First part, I'm just wondering, people on the beat every day this year, how many times have you transcribed the phrase, George Springer is running the bases today? Because that, that's become infamous, and I'm just thinking of like the sheer volume of that. And then the second part, a little bit more serious, is how do you handle those type of um, reports from that you're being given by the Blue Jays? Because there's they're building a reputation of being vague to the point of being misleading sometimes when it comes to injury reports. You know, you think of when Springer was pulled out of that first game when he had come back, and they said it was precautionary, and then it wasn't, and he was on the IL again. I know sometimes information changes, but they, you know, there's been times this year and over the last few years it has been vague. So how do you handle that, taking that information in? Like you said, it's a little bit harder to kind of dig for your own information when they haven't been around and sort of deciding how credulous you're going to be about it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really good question. And I feel like it's sort of a lesson that I've learned this year a little bit. Um, in terms of your first question, uh, generally speaking, um, if it's about like transcribing pregame, I don't do a lot of transcribing pregame. I usually just get the gist of it and then I know what to tweet out because, um, you know, I hate transcribing pretty much like every journalist hates transcribing. So um, I don't know how many times I transcribed uh, George Springer's running the bases. I probably just heard Charlie say that and tweeted out the gist of it uh, as not needing the exact quote. Um, but yeah, in terms of the bigger picture question, yeah, I think that's a lesson that I've kind of learned this year. and. I do sort of fall more in line with giving the team the benefit of the doubt that sometimes information does change um, and sometimes you're strictly in those situations relying on the information that the player is giving you and so if at the time the player thinks I just need a day of rest I just think I tweak something and then a, a day later it doesn't go away and then there is more a level of concern um, and saying, you know, this pain isn't going away, let's actually check it out. And then, you know, sometimes it does change. It does end up being more serious. And so um, even the more recent one, like with George um, crashing into the wall in Seattle and initially, um, I think we all saw with our eyes, it, of course it looked like the ankle, right? And there were very was, there was a very clear rolling of the ankle. And so when the initial report of, the ankle was, you know, a mild sprain and it seemed like it was going to be okay. Um, that was totally believable because we all saw it with our eyes. And I don't think it was inaccurate to say like, um, you know, the ankle sprain is going to be fine. It's going to be a few days. And, but I, and I also can believe that in a few days, um, the ankle starts feeling better, but then you start feeling something in your knee. And if the more acute injury was um, ankle at the time, it's kind of reasonable to expect that they weren't doing, you know, a full workup of his entire leg if they just thought the ankle was where the point of um, pain was. So, you know, those are things that I can wrap my mind around. I think what I would say, though, is that 
I think the lesson learned for me is just to be more, just to sort of build in my writing that, you know, this is what the team said and we have to wait and see for more information. And, you know, maybe it's even building more context into the reports and, 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 you know, going back to, like, I remember with the George Springer thing most recently, um, I sort of thought after I wrote it, I, I should have put more context into the whole injury situation of like, you know, this is what happened, the initial injury. Um, and we know from Ross Atkins talking to us that George Springer has um, a high threshold for pain. So sometimes he can withhold a lot of pain. And so sometimes it doesn't seem as serious. And then um, they realize it is more serious. I think that's been like a storyline with George Springer. Like, you know, even that first injury, was it like the oblique in spring? And it was like he was swinging and he had this like grade two strain, um, but he wasn't feeling the sort of typical pain that you would feel from this like grade two strain or whatever it was at the time. So I think for me, like it's more just like learning um, and really sort of protecting in my writing that like this is coming from the team, but like this is the background of these injuries. This is what's happened in the past. You know, they've said this in the past and then it's been longer. So like, let's just wait and see um, what's going to happen here. But yeah, it's a difficult line to sort of thread a little bit because you're right, like we're not around the team. We're not seeing um, how the guy's walking. Of course, like if the player, or sorry, if the team says one thing and then you see a guy in the clubhouse and he's like limping, like then you can kind of know what's really happening there. But we didn't have that sort of um, opportunity this year. So, or not until recently. So yeah, I think it's, it's definitely been sort of a lesson that I've learned this year. And maybe it's a good thing just to have experienced, um, you know, being away from the team and dealing with a team that's dealing with a lot of injuries. They didn't have as many injuries last year. I don't think, I don't remember this, there being this many injuries last year. Uh, it was also a shortened season. Um, and so, yeah, like that's kind of how I would, I would say it, but yeah, it's been, it's definitely been one of the more difficult parts of reporting on this team this year. Just on Springer, that's just great PR for him. That I don't. It may well be true that his uh, pain threshold is that high, <laughs> but his P, the PR he's got going now is that he's so tough he can't even feel injuries that happen to him, which is uh, it's a pretty good aura to um, to generate for yourself. <laughs> uh, seeing as you're the Robbie Ray uh, expert, you've just told us. Although you know, I I would like to know how much the pants are figuring into this feature. It, it maybe that's something that you wouldn't want to tell us about because that's maybe the hotter commodity. But how real do you see the Robbie Ray Cy Young discourse as being? Because that seems to have popped out, I wouldn't say of nowhere, but really kind of popped up in his last couple outings. And I'm wondering how, how real you think that is. I think it's pretty real. I mean, all his numbers suggest that he should be in the top three voting, I don't know that he's going to win. Um, I think that it's probably a long shot that he'll win. Um, you know, depending on how the season ends for him and how much sort of like lower his ERA gets and how much higher his strikeout counts get and where the sort of final numbers fall. But if you look at it, like it seems like there's probably like three clear candidates like Lance Lynn, um, Robbie Ray and Garrett Cole. I think that Lance Lynn and Garrett Cole probably have somewhat of an advantage just because they're more likely leading their team to the playoff. Well, certainly the White Sox are, and I think it's pretty likely that the Yankees are going too. And whereas the Blue Jays, they're in much more of a fight here. And so if it comes down to sort of player being impactful on also a playoff team, like that might be a knock against Robbie Ray, even though, you know, the Blue Jays wouldn't even be where they are, even close to a playoff spot without Robbie Ray. And 
without a lot of their pitchers, honestly, this last stretch here. Um, and so, you know, I think the discourse is real. I do think it kind of came up um, later, partly just because I think, like, so much of the first half um, was dedicated to, like, Vlad and the MVP chase um, that Robbie Ray was sort of flying under the radar. I think also, like, it took a while for people to simply accept that this is who Robbie Ray is now. Um, I don't know if it's well, who he'll be forever, but certainly I think we've seen enough evidence that, like, you know, he's a guy that throws strikes, he's a guy that strikes a lot of people out, and he's simply not walking the way that he used to. And, and um, you know, barring some sort of unforeseen um, regression in the last month here, I think that he's going to end up, you know, having really good numbers and, um, you know, being very much in that Cy Young race for, for certainly... Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. Like I've actually kind of been saying lately, I don't know if you guys agree with it or not, but I think we're in the territory now where it's much more likely that Robbie Ray wins the Cy Young as opposed to uh, Vlad wins MVP. And like two months ago, I think people would have said to me, you're crazy if you said that. But I think like to me, I'm looking at it and I think the race is much closer for the Cy Young um, than it is for the MVP. I think Vlad's probably going to be a unanimous number two for the MVP. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Robbie Ray, like, to me, the, the margins are smaller in terms of, like, who could win that Cy Young as opposed to, like, the MVP race. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we'd be on board with that. Mm-hmm. Shohei Otani has just been, you know, it's a very, it's a singular season, a totally different feat from anything Vladdy is capable of doing. Uh, you know, if he starts pitching in the last <laughs> month and puts up some zeros, maybe he'd have a chance. But I think it's going to be Otani. One last one on Ray before we let you go just because you've been working on it. Do you, what do you think is the likelihood of a Ray re-signing in the context of his relationship to the team? Because his relationship to the team and to Pete Walker and to the work he's done with the Blue Jays seem to play a big role in him signing, you know, prior to this season, signing that one-year deal. But now we're talking about a totally different context where he's going to be coming off an incredible season. Do you think that that will still play some kind of role this time around or just the stakes and the money is so much bigger that it's going to fall off the table as an important factor i think it'll be a factor um but i think it'll be a factor along with as long as the money is there as well i mean you know it's not as if robbie ray is going to take a huge discount for just being with the blue jays when there's a lot of money being offered from other teams you know hypothetically so i think like if the blue jays make as competitive an offer as they can and as they should probably because I do think that it would be um, a good plan for the Blue Jays to bring back Robbie Ray if this is the pitcher that he's going to be. He's still a relatively young free agent. Um, He actually hit free agency for the first time last year and that was like going into his age 29 season I think. So he's still Mm -hmm. in that sort of like peak of his career um, type of place. And he's obviously shown that, um, you know, he can be a a leader for the rotation. He can put up seasons like this. And so I think it would be a smart move for the Blue Jays to bring back Robbie Ray. And I think that he's shown that he should get the payday that uh, pitchers like his caliber deserve. Um, I don't know exactly what that number is, and I haven't really sort of dug into i know that i think um stoughton you've made the uh wheeler um comparison and and drew has talked about that as well so i think that that's probably 
um, you know, some somewhere in the realm of what Robbie Ray could probably hope for and probably can achieve to get that. Um, and so I think like, yeah, if the Blue Jays are out there making that competitive offer and they also have, um, you know, things that Robbie Ray likes, uh, the, the coaching staff, uh, the Pete Walker effect, the teammates that he likes to play with, this young team that um, while may fall short this season uh, for a lot of different factors, certainly does seem like a team that you um, could see being very competitive for the next few years, given how close they were this year or close they are this year. We don't still don't know what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot going for the Blue Jays in terms of like bringing Robbie Ray back, but that will have to go along with them giving him a very competitive offer that he deserves because, you know, look at Robbie Ray. He could not have played his initial free agency really any better. Um, and we've seen this before. We see this also with Marcus Simeon as they you know, did that whole bet on yourself for one year. And for both of them, it's it's going to work out very, very well for them. And in fact, it's worked out for the Blue Jays because they've got brought in two players who had, um, you know, basically close to career years, basically matching their career years, if not even slightly better than their career years. And, you know, they've, they've potentially won't reap the benefits of that completely because they may end up missing the playoffs just because of a lot of different factors. But I mean, you still look at those two moves for the Blue Jays and think, what a bargain, what great signings for the Blue Jays. And, and they really got the best out of those two players um, that they brought in for one year. And, you know, you hope that if you're the Blue Jays and you can find the money to, um, offer both of them i mean not find the money I, i'm sure there's a lot of money um, <laughs> it won't be Rogers. too hard to find yeah. no no it, as long as they can um you know convince ownership or, or whatever they need to do to pay those two players i think that they've probably shown both those players um the promise that this organization has and and what this organization can offer those two players um and i think that there's probably a good um you know there's a good argument for both of them to want to stay with the Blue Jays again as long as the money's there so um, yes I do think that there's a factor uh, that team uh, organization uh, personnel players perks all this type of thing I know the Blue Jays players always rave about just um, how they treat families and stuff and that goes a long way for guys like uh, Ray and Simeon that have kids of their own and um you know i know the players also really are grateful for the way that the blue jays organization sort of handled the adversity and the sort of trying circumstances that the team played in these past two seasons with you know being in buffalo and being in dunedin and traveling and moving and all that kind of stuff so i think the blue jays have put themselves in a fairly good position in terms of just you know being a, an organization that people like to be a part of but they also ha and and players also know that they obviously are willing to pay big money because they saw what they offered George Springer. So I don't think that I don't think that those players necessarily should be expecting that they should take some sort of hometown discount given like the money that George Springer got. Like I think those two players um, deserve big money as well. So that's gonna be that's gonna be the determining factor as to whether they are Blue Jays um, next year or not. I think. Well, Caitlin, we appreciate you coming on the show for future reference. If we ever refer to you or a piece or a report from you in the future, it will be Caitlin McGrath, friend of the show. So oh, nice. uh, you've got the official <laughs> sticker there, and uh, it was great to have you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I'm friend of the show now.
That was athletic uh, beat reporter Caitlin McGrath and now uh, Robbie Ray aficionado. We'll look forward to seeing that story and learning just how good he is. Um, she gave a lot away that he's good, but I, I think, think he we'll, might be good. I, 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 I'm ready to test that hypothesis this I'm, weekend. I'm going to try and enjoy the story nonetheless <laughs> when it comes out. Uh, yeah. This weekend, I feel like a lot of the times at the end of our podcast, the weekend tee up can be a bit of a throw away not that we're not trying to give you the best content but it just like there 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 isn't a particular significance to that series and this time there is because the Mm -hmm. blue jays are facing the athletics this is a team they're trying to chase down and get in front of because they got to get do that before they can get into the playoff spot and uh you know it's interesting face looking at the a's when you look up and down that roster like the a's just do this thing where they bring in guys that you know and suddenly they're good. Like Josh Harrison is leading off for them, and now he's prime like Pirates making the playoffs. Josh Harrison out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, they've brought Jed Lowry back from the dead for what seems like the fourteenth time, and he's like a above average starter after being you know totally destroyed physically in his um, nightmare of a Mets tenure. Tony Kemp, that like the tiny guy <laughs> you'll remember from like coming off the bench occasionally for the Astros, and you'd be like, why are they even using this guy? They've got a million great hitters. He's an above-average starter for them, so it's it's kind of outrageous. It seems like they develop pitching and they just find position players, and so they you know they have a lineup that's not as flashy as the Blue Jays, but it's still a very difficult lineup to get through, very deep lineup, and then from the pitching perspective, it looks like we're going to see Manea. Paul Blackburn and Cole Irvin. Uh, you know, we all know Manet is a great pitcher. Blackburn's a bit of a newer guy. Hard to know exactly what you're going to get from him. Cole Irvin is just, he's exactly the guy that the Blue Jays seemingly cannot hit. And last time they <laughs> faced him, it was eight innings, one run, nine Ks. Like he throws around 90 miles per hour at the fastball. He's got the changeup. He's left-handed. Uh, Man, it just seems like those games when they're facing... Uh, we've talked about Ryan Yarbrough on this podcast. Mm-hmm. When he's facing those type of guys, they seemingly do not have an answer. So it will be interesting to see uh, if they're able to find an answer for Irvin. Because that maybe that's an indication that the lineup is coming around a little bit if they're able to take advantage of a pitcher that they generally uh, would struggle with. But I, I can't say that I'm super hopeful of slumping lineup versus type of pitcher that they hate facing. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it, it, in a season of frustration, that is a that is that is one that when they come around is is quite quite frustrating because that is a guy that you feel like you should be able to this lineup should be able to deal with much better. They are very right-handed. They should a lefty not throwing super hard. Uh, and yet, uh, yeah, it could be real tricky. And, and I think you're right about the A's. It's it's wild to look at some of those names in the lineup. Uh, every year at spring training, you like kind of look through, you're like, okay, you know, the, the A's aren't going to be great this year. And then every year they're here. Um, it, it's, a, it's a testament to them uh, and their, their cheap jack organization. So they're trying to scam a stadium off the, the taxpayers of, of the Bay Area in California. Yeah, uh, really? But, but they, they keep doing it on the field. And I, I don't particularly, I like them better than the Rays. You know, they've got some, they've at least got some history. They, they, they're, they're not as razy as the Rays. Um, but, but they're know, more razy than most. They're one they of the raziest. I mean, the whatever they were offering Marcus Semyon uh, was a bit of a joke there, which has been a, a gift. That, you know, the, the A's keep giving gifts to the Blue Jays. Uh, I recall Josh Donaldson was pretty good. Um, and yet they they 
have been extremely successful for a really long time doing this stupid thing that they do. Uh, and yeah, you're right. It's not going to be a flashy lineup. You're, you're going to look at it and think like, okay, the Jays should handle this well, and it will be it will be very tricky and a real test. And uh, you know, <laughs> you, again, we're trying not to write the season off prematurely. That's silly, but um, yeah, you'd feel a lot better if they got through with a couple wins out of this series than if not, uh, especially facing the series in the Bronx. The the optimistic side of it, which you referenced a little bit, is the Jays have the pitchers going you would want to have yeah. going. And they also are coming off a day off, which means that you probably have, you know, at least two outings out of Romano, at least two outings out of Mesa. So you've got a rested bullpen, you've got your best starters, you've got potentially Vladdy coming back into form. There's got reasons you got Pearson back too. You got Pearson back. Like there, there are definitely reasons to say, oh, the Blue Jays are hitting this series, um, yeah, in a good spot. But it's it's not going to be an easy series by any means. No, but it, it but it's I mean every pitch is going to matter. I mean it's going to be it's going to be real fun, uh, even though we're sort of all preparing ourselves for uh, for for a nightmare, I guess. Or just for it all to fall apart because the Blue Jays have sort of taught us that lesson all season, not to get our hopes up too high. Uh, but yeah, it should be great. I mean, it, they should be some real hard-fought type ball games. And you know, if they're not, and the Blue Jays want to blow the A's out, I'm very okay with that as well. I don't see it happening. Though. That'd be a refreshing change of pace. There has not been a lot of kind of relaxing blowouts lately. I think the fan base would enjoy that. Uh, maybe that'll happen tonight. We'll see. So uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in to another episode of Blue Jays Happy Hour. Hope you guys continue to rate it, subscribe, tell all your friends, families, enemies, etc., etc., etc. You know all the things that you're supposed to do. And we will see you next week. 